Well, hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. I'm your host, Jez Field. It's great to be together again today for another conversation as we engage with the whole subject of racial reconciliation within the church. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking to Owen Hilton, who's the pastor of Beacon Church in Brixton. Formerly, he worked for 14 years in the civil service. He's the author of the book, Crossing the Divide, A Call to Diversity. And as a black pastor living in London, Owen is familiar with the many challenges of racial justice in the church and in recent months he's put together Pathways of Peace looking at how we can build a reconciled church together. Those are some of the things that Owen and I talk about in our time together. Now in the description to today's episode there's links to uh, Owen's book and anything else that we talk about particularly the things that he's involved with in the church in Brixton. His website is full of videos and articles to help you think through and apply many of the things that he unpacks, uncovers, discusses with me. I found it a very challenging and humbling conversation as you'll you'll hear. Well, for now, let's hand over to Owen as he answers the question. Tell me one thing you've learned about yourself or leadership in the past six months. Enjoy. Okay, yeah, Uh, the past six months I've... Um, I, I've probably learned. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to kind of give two sides to the un- to the answer. Um, one is I probably still carry in myself um, hurts and scars from racial injustice myself. I think I've, you know, that's probably come up again. And then the other thing I've probably learned is I may well have a part to play in helping others who really want to um, sort of press through and build churches that are, are, are truly kind of reconciled. I've, I've probably got a part to play in helping them. And that is, when I say a lesson I've learned, that's probably something I've come to accept is part of my um, my, my future, part of my life. So, mm. um, uh, yeah, I mean, there are loads of other lessons. Yeah, and it is that... Um... That, that tension and challenge that we find often in life, isn't it? That you are both, as you describe, someone who's walking with scars, but also realised you're equipped and able to help others who are hurting. Um, in your book, Crossing the Divide, um, you, which you wrote, I think, in 2009, um, you, you discuss yeah, yeah. issues of diversity. And, and, and you say uh, in one of the chapters here that the issues of diversity are uh, becoming increasingly or necessary to talk about for churches um you wrote that in 2009 um (laughs) based on what you saw going on in the church then now obviously over the past year but particularly the past you know nine months really um that you you would say never more so than now we need to talk about racial justice and reconciliation in the church um you touched on it in your answer briefly do you want to just help us get under the skin of, of how you felt over the past nine to 10 months? Yeah, I mean, when, when I mentioned that in my book, um, to, let, let's be honest, we were in a season of hope because I actually finished the actual writing of my book at the end of 2008 and it was published in 2009. So I finished writing my book in the same month that Obama becomes president of the United States. So we're in a season of hope at that point even though I, I was aware that, okay, I get we're in a season of hope, but I'm, I'm also aware this isn't, you know, that suddenly the world isn't going to become, you know, great and wonderful all of a sudden. 
And I think in these intervening years, just to kind of give some context to the immediate answer, in these intervening years, the things that have kind of, I suppose, sprung up that have carried a little bit around the race issue would be um, in the UK Brexit. Um, uh, you know, there was some underlying stuff around that. I think then when Trump becomes president and then um, in the midst of the lockdown, the pandemic, uh, George Floyd is murdered. But also probably in that period of time, 2008 to, to now, um, there was an increase in knife crime in our cities. Um, and at the end, and in the middle of 2019, Ben Lindsay writes his book. And so there's a lot of things that have led us up to this point where, um, you know, George Floyd is murdered. And, and, uh, and for me, that, that has changed things. I'll be honest, it has changed things. It's, it's highlighted the depth of an issue. It's also highlighted the need for the church to do a bit more soul searching in how it responds. Hmm. Partly because what we discovered off the back of George Floyd was our churches, many people in our churches were carrying pastoral wounds that we were unaware of. And it was only in post that that they kind of began to come out. Mm, yeah, so, it was. Um... Uh, I don't want to say fascinating, that's almost too mild a word, but to me as a white pastor, seeing the depth of yeah. feeling that George Floyd's death seemed to evoke in my black brothers and sisters was a, an eye-opener to me and a real lesson, um, that, well, a, a journey that began for me, really. Uh, I live in a, a very white majority rural countryside ta small town, and so it's uh, it's not something that I had been forced to give much attention to. You know, I think in your book, you rightly talk about the, the, the challenge and the privilege of building a, a multiracial, diverse church in London. Um, those challenges are still there in the suburbs, but they're just less obvious and le there's less urgency to engage with them, perhaps. Um, can you help us, people like me who live in towns like I do, to understand why you think it was that George Floyd's murder and the things that you've described, Brexit and Trump's election, made such a big impact on the on the black community. And, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, the first thing that has to be said and to some degree just accepted, even though it's not always easy, is that um, growing up um, black or non-white in the UK is a different experience than growing up white in the UK, wherever you live. It's a different experience. It's partly because of you're in the minority, uh, but it's also partly because um, of what that history has been uh, over the years. So, so if we accept that it's a different experience, um, but for many, many black people, um, they've kind of been unable to articulate the, that fact. And every time you talk about it, um, people will think that, oh, maybe you've got some issues is that just your problem you know and and i think that that kind of gentle polite pushback is that really was it really raised is it really a thing after a while i think people just just stop talking about it and and they they assimilate as best they can sometimes they even deny racism themselves um and they just get on with life and I think what George Floyd did, and I actually think Ben Lindsay's book did this a, a year before, 
it began to give um, both permission and a language to be able to talk about these things. And George Floyd's death ev evoked an emotional reaction as much as anything. Mm. Uh, people, people who never said boo to a goose before were now confronting their leaders and asking, what are you going to do about it? Um, and I think it, it, I think those two things really mm. evoked that. And and then probably what we've also discovered is in a in a very in a very light touch way the UK is very diverse right across. So you know you've described yourself as as living in this like little town, uh, I suppose a seaside town, um, but you've got black people in your congregation, um, and I think that people have found that all across the country you know, predominantly white, but there are black people here and there in congregations. And and then this gave them permission to speak. And sometimes it was surprising what they were saying. Mm. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, in a sermon I saw of yours recently, um, you talk about the fact that there, the church isn't unique in being a diverse place. There are, you know, there's diversity in every club and organisation you go to, but the church needs to be be more than just an, an organizational community where people of different ethnicities and nationalities exist alongside one another. It needs to be more than that. Um, and I think in your book, again, you talk about how churches became that almost unintentionally, accidentally. It's just what happened. We suddenly found ourselves, as the UK did, with people who are very different in churches together going, oh, wonderful, we're diverse, mm. but we're not necessarily diverse until we recognize the distinctiveness and the differences and yeah. the life experiences that people bring with them and i know that um something ben talks about in his book um talking about experiences of racism and what it's like um being someone of a different skin color in the uk can feel like a, an experience of second trauma over and over again because you're having to talk about something that someone's not legitimizing for you and is denying or like you said is accusing you of oh maybe just being another angry black man uh, if you or you know yeah, yeah, yeah. calm down or maybe it's just your perspective maybe you've got a chip on your shoulder and so you, you have that every time you talk about experiences that are very personal to you and yet you almost feel the need to keep talking about it because no one's listening and so I can I can appreciate this real heartache and challenge in that so I'm, I'm very grateful for your willingness to talk about it is that is that part of what you alluded to then in your opening answer and you said you're both someone who is scarred but also realizing I've got to help other people who are scarred. Um, so how are you processing many of your your wounds? And uh, maybe you could talk about some of those things in particular. Yes. So uh, I mean, I think yes, I'm I'm scarred. I'm I'm reminded of I suppose hurts and and pains and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not only helping other people who are scarred. I, I realize I also have a part to play in helping other people who don't understand. Mm. And so even in that process of helping them understand, I can get scarred again. I can be wounded again and stuff. But but you kind of um, I suppose I suppose metaphorically, I'm um, I'm recognizing, oh, I'm a boxer and getting hit is just part of part of what happens when you box. Um, uh, and so that that is that is part of it. So so so, so I think that so if I really think about the, the deepest things that have pained me, it's not been somebody has said, you know, oh, in your this or oh, in your that. It is that sense of never quite being believed, never quite being understood, mm. never people never quite 
accepting uh, what you say. And you're right. It means that you you feel like you've got to keep talking about it. And then people get the impression that, oh, yeah, he's the guy that always talks about race and diversity. Whereas if you if if you kind of knew me, you'd you'd know, oh, no, actually, he's not the guy who always talks about race and diversity. Uh, probably he's got other other passions, but he's been forced into that because of circumstance and situation. So that probably gets me more than over, you know, racial slurs. You know, I've, I've preached and had people come up to me and said, oh, by the way, I'm racist or, you know, I, I, I've had those kind of conversations and those things don't, don't, they bother me less than somebody saying, oh, that probably just sounds like you've got problems or do you need to sort that out? Or is that just another opinion? those things probably bother me more um from a from a personal perspective and I, and I would I have that regularly that's my regular experience so you know to this day that's my regular experience how as a boxer who's constantly getting hit having to help other people learn to box how do you not just become really defensive um, or hard-hearted, hearted towards people who don't see things as you see them. How do you keep open to listening to other people's points of view and perspective? Because I, I appreciate that it must be very hurtful to have to be on the receiving end of those sorts of comments all the time. Um, and it's hard to distinguish between people who are just blind and people who are just naive and unaware. Like, oh, I had no idea. I, I can't imagine that. Are you sure? Like, help me to understand that. How do you differentiate between the two um, responses? Because often that that's what makes it harder for us to have these conversations. Because I'm, I don't want you to hear me to be saying X, Y, or Z. And so there's a lot of challenges in just understanding each other. Perhaps you can speak into some of that. Yeah, I mean, I I think personally how how I've done that um, is, uh, and it, this might sound this isn't meant to sound overly spiritual. But um, I think that my own walk with God has has very has developed in quite deeply, and I, I bring a lot of that to Him. Um, but also, um, I I feel like He has given me grace to cope. And what I've realised is grace to cope doesn't mean that I don't suffer, doesn't mean it's not hard, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, um, but it does mean I can I can stand up under it. I can I can live with it. And then he's also given me grace to speak. So I don't actually make a big differentiation between people who are ignorant um, and people who might be arrogant and dismissive. Uh, no, I, I don't make a big differentiation. I'll, 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 I'll kind of in, I'll try and show grace to both. And probably a few years ago, like even before I wrote my book, I had come to the conclusion that it might sound odd, but that the white people also have a place at the table of diversity. And that changed then how I then responded because I'm like, okay, there is also a voice that has to come uh, the other way. E even if it might be naive, even if it might be outcome, there's a journey that needs to be, to be taken on. And that was quite a big thing because I know, I, so I probably know a lot of black people who probably don't think that. You probably think that you know maybe white people have given up their rights for a place there because of history and the way things have gone. Mm. Um, but I came to that conclusion, um, and so that has meant I engage. And also, I'm I'm growing up in a movement that is 
predominantly white in the UK, even if it's, we, you know, we might talk about it, oh, it's not predominantly right around the world, but it is predominantly white in the UK and functions exactly like any any other movement and organisation here. And that's the one I've grown up in. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, I, will, I want to come on to kind of hear more about your experience as a, as a pastor in a predominantly white pastor movement. But I just want to come back to this idea of, um, and you didn't use this word, but it's the idea of white fragility that we people of a paler skin colour can become very defensive very quickly uh, when someone tries to talk about their experience because it can sound a lot like I, as a you know naive white person, is racist towards you or prejudice against you. And that makes the conversation harder, all the more harder, because white people aren't able often to listen without becoming upset or defensive. And yet, you know, I know from talking to my, my black friends, just the pressure and weight of expectation on a say a black a young black man growing up to be perfect and to not put a foot wrong not not to be aggressive not to fail at exams not to do this not to do that because they feel the weight of representing an entire you know racial community in the way that I don't no one when I make a mistake no one goes oh it's just a an angry white man they just think oh it's just you know he's just behaving badly whereas uh, help me to understand some of the pressures that perhaps black people white people feel differently around those issues and speak into white fragility if you want yeah so so i i think it fundamentally i think in the world in which we live when we see uh, say a white person slip up make a mistake or 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 do something um i might our general response would go, oh, um, yeah, that's just Jez. Maybe he was tired. Um, you know, you know, there were other pressures upon him, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and we will look at it as that individual. It was Jez. And I try and explain Jez. When, when a black person messes up, makes a mistake or, or whatever, I don't, I don't look at them as Owen. I look at them as being black. And so they they represent that to me. And particularly, I do that if the way if what they've done is a negative. So so if I've done something that's negative, I will be seen as a black person. If I've done something that's really positive, I'll be seen as Owen. So so you won't necessarily associate my positive um actions with oh my goodness I didn't realize that you know black people do those things yeah but you might associate my negative action with being black and so as a black person you're having to navigate this world of okay I can't afford to do anything you know and so that's what you know in, in my book I talk about you know um when people say oh I don't see your color I just see you I'm like oh no but I am black and you kind of have to see that I'm black in order that your, your thinking around black people is affected by the positive things that you might see me do, rather than thinking that, oh, black people are like this and Owen's different. Um, hmm. So uh, uh, there is a bit of that. Now, also, when I've done things, when, when I was at my old church and we ran an event, um, uh, it was in 2007, it was the 200th abolition of the slave trade we ran an event to commemorate that that nationally this the thing that saddened me in the church was um we we acknowledged the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade and then we immediately went to talking about slavery today 
And I was like, well, what happened to the 200 years in between? Um, and so as a church, we did an event. And I remember some of my white friends being annoyed with me. I suppose this would be what you're describing as white fragility, because the event made them feel bad. It wasn't that I had tried to make them feel bad. We were just presenting some stuff, but it made them feel bad. And so they were they got annoyed. <laughs> um, and I was like, OK, you know, because um, they what could they they didn't know what to do with the feelings. They were there and they didn't yeah. know what to do with them. So, yeah, I guess I guess they're so they're not used to having to live with those tensions in a way that I, I suppose a black person would be having on a regular basis, living to live with tensions of having to overlook unintentional slights of behavior or speech, yeah. overlook not being heard or fully represented. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because it's not it's not obviously just in society, but in the media's portrayal of black people that uh, they often are caricatured and stereotyped a lot yeah. more. I mean, it's changing. Uh, as a family, we're really into uh, watching and listening to Hamilton, the musical. And that was fascinating to see American history retold with black actors. Yes. And uh, now I see the, the impact that's making on my boys who are white, the unintentionally unintentionally the way that they are being can shaped and changed to think more positively about people of a darker skin color to the point that my son said to me the other day dad my favorite president is george washington he's picturing that black guy from yeah, the musical yeah, yeah. he knows nothing else <laughs> yeah and i can see the kind of positive impact that makes not just on, on my family but particularly on young black kids growing up as well how important do you think things like that are to see in every part of society, including church leadership. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating. Hamilton is one example. The other most recent example of exactly what you've described was the film The Black Panther, um, which was an all-black cast, uh, but it's a Marvel action movie, yeah? I, I went to see that in Blackpool um, with with my wife, um, and I think I think my daughter who lives there, oh, I can't remember if she came with us, but we went, we went to see it. And you literally came out of the movie and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if there were and, and there was a guy behind me, a white guy behind me, and he made a comment, which was clearly for me to overhear. But I'm not really great at those things, so I don't ever respond. I'm not I'm not friendly like that. <laughs> um, but he made a comment about being the Black Panther rapidly becoming his favourite Marvel action hero. And I was like, gosh, imagine if more movies were made with this kind of positive image of black people, but not just as the hero, because the whole movie it was all black people and, and to just normal black people were black and the normal everyday people. Um, and I thought, gosh, this would change the way people immediately begin mm. to change the way people thought. And so um, important role models is, is, is massive. It's, it's a massive thing. Uh, for us and you I mean to be honest you see it in scripture don't you in Acts 6 you see um, when they have a problem which fundamentally is an ethnic racial problem between the, the the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews who do they get to help solve the problem Greeks or in Acts 13 when you look at the the, the diverse leadership team in Antioch um, it's very deliberate right at the beginning of the church the leadership team of Antioch, the church that was the first place that they spoke to Greeks, is diverse. And so that that kind of thing would really help. And he talks about it in his book, Ben, ben Lindsay talks about seeing me on the stage at King's and recognising, oh, OK, there's room for me here. And it's not that you want lots of tokenistic 
people, but you definitely need to work towards having a leadership that that both um, reflects your congregation, let alone your context. Mm. Often use that phrase of other things, but you celebrate what you want to reproduce, but you, you almost celebrate what you then want to emulate, and you create a positive culture. Um, and I guess what's what's different, I, I hear you saying, is that. I don't watch films with lead white actors and come out going, wow, I feel so empowered as a white man. But then that's because things aren't, all things aren't equal. You know, I live in a society where all role models, whether negative or positive, are often white people. Is that, is that quite a sharp distinction that perhaps why, as a white person, I don't appreciate the impact of, say, seeing a black preacher on the stage or a, um, a lead actor in a film that's being celebrated? Yeah, massively. And, and, it, and it, it comes down to this, that, that, say, as a white pastor, you don't necessarily recognise, one, that it's different, and two, the impact that that has on, on people, not just the black people, but also the white people. Yeah. So if you see a, you know, so at, at New Day, in, I think it's, I can't remember, it was 2019, we had, a, um, it was one of Toppy's sons, a guy called TJ, who spoke. And um, it was a powerful, he was a great speaker and all of that. But what was powerful was here's a guy that, that once upon a time sat on the carpet at New Day as a young person. And I think he was the second guy to emerge from the carpet to the, to the stage uh, to speak. And everybody loved him. Everyone loved him. You know, he, it was, it, he was a positive role model for black and white people. Uh, I'm sure for black people, they felt empowered. And I think white people just loved, they just loved having a, maybe a different kind of hero to have. And so, you know, he went and did a seminar later that week and he just packed it out and he could have said anything. Yeah, because he was he was so well loved and he was brilliant. So it wasn't that. Mm. But that kind of role model. And if you think about some an event like New Day, which had been running for 15, 20 years, never had that role model. Um, but it had had hundreds and hundreds of black kids for years and years and years coming to it. Um, that role model was, is massive. It makes a big mm. difference. Well, I'd love to come on to talk about perhaps why you think it, it takes so long or it took so long in that instance. But um, perhaps just to hear some of your experiences as a black pastor and a majority white pastor movement. Could you share some of those? Yeah, I mean, I, um, yeah, you, you'll know, I... I uh, the way I always describe this is I I was at every Downs Bible Week and every Stonely and before the Downs I went to the Dales yeah so um, at that point there ain't no black people in North Yorkshire I'm telling you that much <laughs> and um, and somehow my mum uh, ends up taking us up to the Dales um, I think it must have been seventy eight and then we come to the Downs um, and I suppose I got used to the fact that there weren't many black uh, people around um I wouldn't have realized or known um some of the you know maybe slights I was going through I wouldn't I didn't really necessarily realize them um and then as I got older and wanting to be a pastor I, you know I, I really did and and this was the only thing I knew I didn't know any other kind of church and mm. context and stuff um so um I think that I, uh, I probably ex experienced um, a lot of unintentional just rejection. I, I, I probably experienced a lot of 
you know, it just even in terms of how I came into leadership and um, there were times when I was I was in a leadership position, but I wasn't being supported by those who maybe were there to support me. Um, and and then I remember going through my experiences and trying to explain them and them just not being believed. And that was in a way my book came out of that experience. I thought I've got to somehow articulate what this is like, what is going on here. Um, because I didn't realize the extent to which that um, that othering was happening. I was, you know, and not just me, but the other other black people were experiencing. And, and I would be in church. And um, even when I was on the staff, it became apparent that when new people came to the church, if they were white, we all within minutes, within days or weeks, we all knew who they were. And we, you know, we'd all be connecting to them and everything. Um, and if they were black, they could be there for years and we still didn't know their names. And I was like, wow, you know, how, how does that kind of happen? Um, and so that probably, I, I saw that, I experienced that, um, I found that difficult. I wanted to give up on church. And it was at that point of wanting to give up on church that I thought, oh, look, before I do, I should at least read the Bible and find out what does the Bible say about this stuff? race and diversity and and you know and so I did a study from Genesis through to Revelation and just on on those issues you know looking from us being created in God's image and then the promise to Abraham and all of that stuff um, and I was I was shocked at the the wealth I was shocked at the depth of God's purpose and promise for this I, I was shocked myself at it and I knew at that point I couldn't give up um, trying to build a church that was genuinely what I now call reconciled. I knew I couldn't give up on that. And I knew then if God had called, if God was purpose in that, that he would give me the grace for that. So um, I then, you know, moving on when I became a pastor myself, um, actually, you know, whether or not this was right or wrong, I remember uh, dumbing down talking about race and diversity because I, I would only need to do it once in a year and people would think that's all I talked about. Uh, you could do it every week and they still wouldn't they'd say, oh, what's just going on about? But for me, and I also realised that um, the reality of connecting with people, because I was a, it was a New Frontiers church uh, in Brixton, um, the reality of connecting with people who came was a bit more tricky for me. That's what I realised. I, di I, I didn't know it would be so. And I realised that as a, if I were, you know, now some people wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I mean, you're just making this up. This is you and blah, blah, blah. But my experience now over like 10 years of doing it um, and a little bit of the experience before I came was, I think, as a say you as a white leader, someone could come to your church like the average New Frontiers kind of person. They might come to your church and within two weeks you could win them. And you particularly, because you're like one of the mean, uber, uber, uber friendly kind of people. Yeah. Um, I probably wouldn't get as far with them in two years as to what you would get to in two weeks in terms of their underlying commitment to, to, to me or whatever. Um, and I discovered that. I discovered that that was a reality, that I, I was a strong leadership developer when I was at King's. I became really weak at it when I first came to Beacon. Um, and, and I think that was probably some of it. And I knew that because I once brought a friend to speak. He, he was another leader in New Frontiers. New couple were there. 
had had this guy been pastoring the church, this couple would have come back the following week. It was really obvious. They, they connected. Uh, and, and I did all the things you were meant to do to connect. I was having people around, all of that kind of stuff, and found it almost impossible to connect people who came from a new front, other New Frontiers churches who wanted to visit. Um, most people who connected to Beacon, the Beacon's quite a small church, connected in other ways. There were other ways that they found their way in. And so that um, was a challenge um, for me. And then probably I found that people were in and they were committed, but deep down, maybe they weren't fully committed. And if I made a mistake or something that, it, you know, people could go quite quickly. Um, and so when you say people, are you largely talking about white, like connecting with people. You're largely talking about the challenge of connecting with white people as opposed to black people. So connected white people, but also, yeah, but also, interestingly enough, you'd have black people who um, would end up in, in obviously a lot of multicultural churches. Most multicultural churches are led by white people. And, and my whole point in my book, I'm, I make the point that a lot of black people being drawn to those churches um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and so then to be drawn to a church that would, you thought was fundamentally a white church and it was led by a black guy, then that was, for some black people, that wasn't what they wanted anyway. So, um, uh, yeah, so there was, a, there was a definitely, a, the, most visitors to Beacon over the years, I think, have been white most people who have looked in um and yeah so th that would be my own experience of it um yeah now that might you know people might go oh no that's not true you're bad at this and i i get all of that there'll be some per there'll be get there'll be some personal things in there and if pauline were on this call she'd be like i mean it wasn't like that you know but just my own experience of yes. it looking back yes uh, i i really appreciate your um honesty and talking about your experience of, of growing up in a church movement that's predominantly white and have reaching that moment of thinking maybe I should just give up on church um there's a couple of things you talked about there I'd love to just pick up on just just firstly I guess more briefly is talk to me about you use the word othering there which I know Ben covers in his book um that was a new concept to me um, perhaps you can help me understand what that means so I suppose um when I talk about that I, I'm talking about it might be unintentional and invisible being pushed to the side, being ignored, being, um, or, you know, just rejected. And, you know, Jez and Owen walk into a room and we're, we're both greeted politely, but the warmth with which you're greeted is obviously different. Or, um, you know, uh, you know, we've got a leader and they, you know, they come to both of us and when they come to me, they're kind of high-fiving me, like, because that's what black people do. Hey, <laughs> when when they come to you, it, it's it's just a lot more warm and ser serious. It's more real. Um, and so I would I would feel that. Yeah. And I've I've had to do that. I when I worked for the Crown Prosecution Service, I experienced that. You know, I had barristers high-fiving me. Um and, you know, and so when I was in church, I'd realise, oh, OK, I'm I'm not in that group. You know, that group seems to exist and people are socialising together. I I thought I was part of that. Oh, clearly I'm not part of that. I didn't realise that. So so othering can happen in many invisible, subtle ways. Um, and you you learn mm. you learn to live with it or you 
you just withdraw from situations where you might be othered. Yeah, um, well, that is fascinating. And particularly, you know, that comment about being high-fived by barristers, which I, I guess is largely the result of, like we talked earlier, really, of living in a culture where the stereotyped portrayal of a black man in the media is is this and so therefore if you're if you've grown up and you've not had many close friends who are different skin color to you you immediately go oh that's how you talk to people who look differently and and i guess in a way we're we all learn how to relate to one another socially through our parents through the media whatever and so the fault isn't necessarily always at the individual's fault who's doing it they don't know they're doing it but it perhaps emphasizes the importance of conversations like this that expose some of the unintentional othering or ways that you go why do i why do we treat someone who's got a different skin color differently instinctively and that's where i suppose having positive role models and and experiences in the media really helps um you talked earlier about reaching that point of thinking maybe i should leave church and you you describe something in your book about and you imagine an alien from another planet coming to visit and being told the gospel thinking this is wonderful and then (laughs) spending some sundays visiting churches and seeing the segregation in the churches you've got a young church here an old church there a modern church there a traditional church a black church white church and the alien concluding this obviously isn't what you think it is and as i read that i thought yeah that that isn't just a problem for an alien it's, it's a problem for me like <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. the gospel is as you rightly point out that christ came to destroy the dividing walls of hostility and yet a cursory glance of youtube and what gets said often by conservative christians or uh, you know the comment that um, the sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week um, certainly in american society that is, it's not just heartbreaking, it's deeply challenging to what we think we believe. Um, yeah. the, is the is the gospel working? Is it effective? Have we, you know, help me understand, how did you process yeah. that and work through that? Because I find yeah. that a, like a source of pain and doubt, like, oh my goodness, yeah. maybe we have this idea and we're never going to achieve it. Sorry, you go. Yeah, uh, and I, but I think that is partly right, that some people, if they're really honest, they don't think that... Um, what what I'm calling the reconciled church, churches that are genuinely reconciled around race and gender um, in terms of people feel that they belong, even even when they're coming from awful kind of backgrounds. Um, uh, There are some people who don't believe that. They don't. And so and so they're not working towards that. Um, And, you know, they're 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 cessationists when it comes to, you know, what we would have called one new man, what I would call the reconciled church. That's not what it is. The other thing is that some people aim for something else and think that that will come after. So, you know, I remember a pastor in London going, oh yeah, we'll worry about diversity later. And I'm like, if you don't build that in from the beginning, you, you'll you never build that in because um, you'll, you'll, you'll set a culture of a church that will mean the only way I can be involved in this church would be to assimilate and become as like you as I possibly can, um, uh, except for the skin of my, the color of my skin. Um, I have to just become like you. I have to pray like you. I have to lead like you. I have to. I have to raise my kids like you in order to be involved with you. Uh, otherwise, you're going to think, um, okay, no, we, you know, we're not quite ready for that, or no one really knows him and stuff. Um, and so I think that the, the, the kind of the issue is um, very real. I am what I became, though, was fully persuaded that the gospel doesn't say that. 
So I am fully persuaded, not just not just the gospel, as in the bit about Jesus dying on the cross, um, but the the gospel story, the Bible story, doesn't paint that picture. It paints a very different picture. And even the inclusion, I was this is this is in my head because I was preaching on Sunday on the story of of Ruth. Even the inclusion of Ruth in this list, in this genealogy of Jesus, her being a Moabite. And I'm like, that's her story is Ephesians 2 in the Old Testament. Someone who was a foreigner, an alien on the outside, um, gets drawn in and now is a member of the family, part of the household of God. That's her story. And I'm like, okay, God, that's your, that's what you were doing all the time, and so I am fully persuaded that the that the gospel. I don't, I don't shake on that at all. Um, mm. The reality is that the church is not what we think it is. Uh, however good we think we are, our superficial acceptance of diversity is, you know, is being exposed. Mm. You know, um, and we we've kind of got to be humble enough to acknowledge that and try and work out what to do. But I, because I'm persuaded that God. God hasn't intended that. And also I'm persuaded, oh God, you're able to do it. You know, even if we can't do it, you're able to do it. So I don't hold it as a pressure on myself and I'm not depressed by it. And the, the things that bother me are the things I've talked about before, but that, that bit doesn't, I'm fully persuaded in it. And, and my aim is to let people realize, no, no, this is a gospel thing. It's not a social justice thing. It's a gospel thing. It seems it needs to be put alongside our battles against what we might call sins of the flesh that we're very well aware of as Christians that we talk about regularly. And yet when it comes to this one, we, we just kind of accept, oh, this is difficult. It's not difficult. It's actually <laughs> sinful yeah, yeah. to not pursue um, a kind of radical death to self that allows you to be rewired. And that, that's where I think I find it painful and challenging is because I think I get it. I, I agree. It's in the heart of the gospel. It, but if that's the case, why do we not see more of it in reality? And I suppose that points to the the power of sin and the way that it hides deeply in our hearts to the point that we're more shaped by our cultures and our newspapers than we are by the word of God and the spirit of God and opening ourselves to the challenge of, of pastoral prophetic preaching. I definitely think the cult that we are more shaped by our culture than we realise. And we don't realise the depth of the issue. So I wouldn't if, you know, uh, you know, if I were like a white leader, I wouldn't think twice about planting a church in an area with eight of my friends who are all white. I wouldn't think to myself that that's a problem. I would think, oh, no, we'll reach people. There would be a kind of an ignorant confidence that I would have that I can do this. Um, the reality is I might reach people who come on a Sunday, but they never connect in. They never really connect into the church. And, and I would be used to that because, you know, white people are used to leading and, and black people are used to being in context where white people lead. Um, the other way round, um, you have to probably search the world to find the other way round, where black people lead in context that are majority white, but you won't find them. You literally will not find them. I would, I would challenge anyone to, to show many situations where you have black people um, who are you know leading in a context which is majority white uh, of some scale? Um, I'd challenge anyone because we're not used to it. We don't see it in our workplaces. We don't expect to see it in the church. Um, and so and so, what happens then? And and the challenge we have then is when black people come through to leadership, 
the challenge is that people react to it, but they don't react to it directly. Nobody ever goes, I don't want a black leader. But they might go, oh, I'm not sure about this transition and you know, I'm not sure this is going on. And, and, and I know a guy who's having to go through that. You know, he's coming through to lead. And then there was talk about, oh, the white, the white guy who was in charge saying, oh, should I just remain as a figurehead leader and you really lead? And, you know, because um, it's a very it's it's a difficult thing for white people to 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 come to that place where they will accept a black leader in, in that kind of context. They'll accept a strong black leader in the context where there is a white leader, but but where it's the black guy is the leader, I think that is a context that is it, it's, it's, it's not talked about, never mentioned, but it but it doesn't happen very often in the church at all. Wow. Uh, I'm so grateful for your comments. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's no. uh, deep, deeply <laughs> provocative and very, very helpful and isn't the sort of thing I've ever heard before. So I'm so okay, right. which again probably just points to the points to the challenge of the problem that we've got. That this is not something that we talk too much about. I just want to there's a quote that you shared in your book that I thought really stood out to me by uh, John Forbes, who said, if you enjoy 75% of what's going on in your church, your church isn't thoroughly integrated. Yeah. To be to be content with less, we need to all learn to be content with less than total satisfaction. Yeah. And do you think in part what what you're pointing what you're talking about points to that reality yeah. not only are we consumeristic in our attitude towards church but we want we want to have a, a high degree of fit and yeah. you know enjoyment of everything in church and yet by the very nature of diversity it requires us to be perhaps more mature not only than we are but than we're used to being because our society doesn't encourage us to move towards maturity. It allows us to stay in infancy and just get what yeah. we want, like children. Talk to yeah. me a bit about that um, that quote. Yeah, so uh, you're, you're exactly right. That, that the, the experience that we have of church is not just shaped by our theology and, and our desire for mission. It's just shaped by our comfort and our own personal uh, uh, preferences. And so what happens, and, and so the thing to understand with that is... So when a black person attends your church, they are already recognizing that that might not be true for them. Yeah. So they're already accepting. I may not enjoy the majority of what goes on here, um, but I'm, I'm hoping to enjoy enough that I can be here. Um, and for most white people, that is fine. What happens, though, that that whole point, bit about 75% is there often comes a tipping point where white people begin to feel uncomfortable with the nature of the, the diversity that they're experiencing. They begin to feel uncomfortable. And what and then what they do is they they um some of them will just leave, you know, won't even be a thing. They'll just leave. Others of them will begin to speak up. Oh, is this church for all of us here? Is it really for me now? You know, you know, what? why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Um, and so they'll begin to uh, question and, and speak up. Um, and, and, and also we end up creating a church culture, which is really race based or, 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 or class based. And we don't even realize that that's what we've done. Um, and so one of the things that I talk about, um, but I don't talk about it in the book because it, it came as a phrase to me post the book, I think, I think is that where the cross and culture meet, culture must die. This idea that, that your culture is the very thing that the cross 
comes against really the the or, or not the, the cross the fruit of the cross a reconciled church is comes against your culture now we have heard in the past i've heard in the past oh culture is neutral culture's not it's neither here or there i'm like no culture is not neutral <laughs> uh, culture is real and it's a barrier um to people who want to join um who can't maybe meet your cultural norms and expectations um it's a real bat it's a real barrier to them so how do i build a church and then my argument goes um but that is exactly what happened to the jews the, the jewish church it was cultural distinctives that were being undermined by the gospel wasn't it the food laws um mm. the um I, I can't come into your house circumcision these were these were cultural things that 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 meant that they were distinctive from other people um and it and the gospel challenged that that's what the gospel challenged and i and i think it challenged it there it must challenge it now and so um yeah so so i think that that now you can have those kinds of churches even when you might have a majority black congregation you can have churches that are at their core of it they're still white and people are still holding on to those things um and and what normally happens is the white people gravitate to wherever they feel most comfortable in the church um and and you know the church could be overrun you know by black people but the white people will find themselves um in a place wow. uh, as you're talking I, i'm thinking about um a friend of mine who planted a church in the middle east talked to me about some of the the cultural challenges that he faced as an englishman just trying to understand middle eastern culture and i remember thinking at the time as much as i love the idea i could never do that my turns out my englishness is far too deeply ingrained it would be too painful and he even said you know once you're over 30 it becomes so much harder for you to to adapt to another culture um health or like easily but as you're speaking i'm realizing oh, i have i have to do that here like like it's it's not just if i went to the middle east i'd really have to die to my english ways and it's not even about englishness it's just the way i was brought up my family's culture which is where you know what, what we mean by culture the primary influence on us is going to be our mum and dad or not or you know whatever background we come from and that's just got a it sounds simple, but for me, that's just become quite a profound realisation as you're talking. I was wrong to say I could not do that and therefore I'll avoid the Middle East and planting churches in cross-cultural settings where actually we've all got to wake up to the fact that that's what's going on in our you know, churches every week. And people are having to go through that process, yeah. whether we realise it or not. What we need to do is to wake up to the fact that we as pastors and as those in the majority culture need to also go through that process of death and personal re-evaluation of our own culture and attitudes uh, and uh, th this will sound in our context so forgive me if this this uh, um, will uh, upset people because i don't i don't mean to upset people deliberately but what you're saying there is is interesting I, and i understand the way we operate missionally in our movement but i think personally um the the very least we should be doing is re-evaluate evaluating how we do mission because the truth is I can, if I learn to die to myself and my culture living in London, I can reach the world. Yeah. And I don't need to go to the world, but, but within probably within two miles of where I meet, there will be a hundred different cultures, hundred different nationalities. If I could learn to reach those people, many of those people, the truth is they want to go home. 
Yeah, they're not not everyone who's come from abroad has come to England because they want to stay and live forever. Some of them want to go home. Imagine if we um, found a, a way of setting up a, a process or a, or a program that that trained people to go home to plant churches. Um, and when I was at, when I was in my previous church, um, a guy came up to me after I can't remember if I'd spoken. He came up to me and he was from Ghana and he said. I want to plant a church like this back home. Yeah. And what he meant by that wasn't that he wanted a church that was white and black, but but some of the way the the, the way the church was, the grace that he experienced there, um, the, the the breaking down of walls for him, it would be tribal. Uh, for us, it might have been more ethnic, cultural or racial. Um, he wanted to do that back in his own um, his, his hometown. And actually, um, the the little group uh, emerging sphere I'm part of now, interestingly enough, they they've sent people um, who are going home to their hometowns to plant churches. And I personally think that's what we should be doing. We should be reaching people because because we've been given the opportunity to reach people from right across the world, which not everyone has, and we send them home and they plant churches and. Um, that they that you know that I, I just think that's that for me is a no-brainer now we're, we're not yet doing it and even I'm not yet doing it but I still think that would be how I would want to do this um, now I'm not saying that people can't go and all of that but I think man imagine if you could send someone from a Syrian back to Syria who understood grace who understand what it mm. some of these things imagine if that happened and then you supported them, you trained them, you helped them, when you gave everything to them. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's this that makes the church the hope of the world because we have a God who a Godhead who is diverse. And if the church grasped the power and significance of that, then you'd send that man back to Assyria to plant his church. But he wouldn't be planting an Assyrian church. He'd be planting a Christian church that <laughs> exactly. is trying to represent and reflect the Godhead in its embracing of diversity. And that's where if we start to think of diversity as tokenistic, we've got it completely wrong because as you as you rightly said, it's in the very fabric of who we are as a people that's what makes us different from say islam that has a, a god on its own who wants to create everything that looks you know monolithic and the same islam's practice the same the globe over christianity looks wildly different the globe over because god is different in that sense he's not only incarnational but he's diverse well just as um we're kind of draw drawing to a close a little bit i'd love to hear a bit more about um, what you're doing now uh, in Brixton, uh, your pathways to peace and your emphasis on the reconciled church, some practical tips. I've, and I've seen on your website, you've got some really helpful PDFs that people can download. And by the way, all links to where they can buy your book and uh, download the material will be in the show notes um, to this episode. So people can go there if they want to find out more. But tell us a bit more about pathways to peace and the reconciled church. Yeah. So again, I, I, it was really off the back of George Floyd. I, I, I concluded, I suppose, um, I, you know, I, I've just got to go for this. I, I've, I've got to go for this. And I suppose I I, I, I came um, and I, I responded initially by just writing a piece to say, this is my own response to what's going on. Um, I then got such feedback from that, that I, uh, I thought, well, okay, how do I then, then help people? And I'm always in my response trying to, be I suppose biblical I'm trying to I'm not just coming up with ideas so when we talk about a pathway to peace in my mind there is Ephesians 2 
um, the, the cross, he, he broke down the walls, um, he removed the hostility, thus bringing peace. And, and that peace is not just peace between me and God, it's peace between me and you. And so um, although it, it comes out with um, a process towards peace of engagement, education, um, I think it's empathy and encouragement, that, that, and, and that there's this engagement towards peace, there's a recognition that, that peace is won at the cross, but I, I need to kind of draw it from there. I, I can't think of it as this ethereal peace in the air. It, it's one at the cross. And so um, that that was there to, to really help. I think the reconciled church through, I suppose, lots of conversations with different people, you know, you and others. I'm just gathering a group of people who I know in their own context are really trying to look at this. How do we do this? How do we do this better? How do we learn? How do we become equipped to um, lead churches better? understand our congregations better and in our own context and so what you know we're, we're gathering this group together just from different I suppose spheres within New Frontiers where all New Frontiers churches people who I suppose to some degree have either reached out to me or reached out um, to Angela Kemp particularly um, we're wanting to do that and help so that's kind of what we're doing I mean locally we're all just building the church as it were and um, we're working not just on issues around race. We've kind of come up with a number of steps towards the reconciled church. We are preaching on each of them in our church at the moment. So, so that's like, it's, I think in the end, it'll be 13 weeks that we've preached. We've got videos of race conversations that we've been showing every week. Um, and so in a local context, we're doing that. And, and we're also recognising that the reconciled church is not purely about race. It's also... It has an impact around gender it has an impact around i suppose poverty it's it's recognizing that these people are different their experiences are different but the gospel that you preach to them can be impactful it's, it's isaiah 61 you know it's good news to the poor it, it, it you know the gospel binds up the brokenhearted it sets the captive free and so we're kind of really going for those things um and uh, locally and and uh yeah and, and i'm learning a lot I'm, I'm learning a lot around the race thing but if i'm honest i'm learning masses around the gender thing partly through my relationship with emma gould so I'm, I'm learning loads around that in, in in a way historically i might not have engaged now i'm realizing i have to engage i have to engage um you know because the bible says that elders direct the affairs of the church well in order to do that, I must I must understand my congregation and I must understand my context. Otherwise, I, I can't do that. Mm. So I'm, I'm feeling those things quite strongly within me. Wow. Oh, so, so grateful for our time together. Uh, there is a there is a need for elders to lead courageously. And I think often we haven't had conversations like this because either we've been afraid of offending or we've been afraid that we're going to have to under like you mentioned the, the gender one they're talking to emma often we haven't engaged with the conversations and experiences of women in our churches well enough because we're afraid oh they're going to want to dismantle 
I was teaching on male only eldership. Oh, so we won't engage with it <laughs> because that's a very fearful, defensive approach to someone's yeah, story yeah. and experience. And I guess the the call, not just in the conversation about racial yeah. diversity, but in any form of diversity and leadership in the church, is a call towards courage and conversations where we're willing to listen, um, unafraid to other people's experience and legitimise what they've gone through. Um, so your your steps engage, educate, empathise, and encourage. Um, really helpful. And as, as you mentioned, there is plenty of resources available on your website um, which again we'll post a link to so people can download um, Owen as we as we draw to a close is there anything else that's kind of just bubbling in your head that you'd love to just leave us with as we finish I, I think just the the encouragement for people to 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 push push the boundaries um, I don't think there's anything in the scriptures where progress was made without a boundary or a tradition being pushed you know, if I go back to the story of Ruth and Boaz, the reality was Ruth should never have been in, on the threshing floor. That was the wrong place for Ruth to be. Yet that was the place that it was almost like in God's grand purpose, Ruth was meant to be in order that God's purpose could be fulfilled in her life um, and through the life of Boaz. And sometimes we have to push against not not fight i'm not necessarily asking us to fight but push against what we think of as norms and what you just mentioned there is really interesting about fear you know one of the reasons we don't do these things is fear uh, and the and another reason is we're trying to preserve sound doctrine or whatever it is and i'm like there's a danger that we preserve sound doctrine to the point where sound doctrine isn't sound doctrine anymore um and and we're trying to preserve something that that you know isn't really there and we have to engage with a world that has changed and i could go on about that for ages but the world has yeah. changed and we and we have to engage with it as is i see i see it very clearly in new day but i also see it very clearly in my own context that if i preach the gospel in the same way i did 20 years ago it's not just that fewer and fewer people will be saved it would just become more and more irrelevant not not because jesus didn't die on the cross but because the world that we live in today re requires us to think slightly differently about how we present the gospel and so um that's quite that that's i'm living with that i suppose that's brilliant and perhaps that's a, a conversation for another day we can get you to come back and talk to us about presenting the gospel to answers today's questions which would you know, <laughs> which would make sure we're yeah. not just getting you to talk about issues of race <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah so there definitely race is obviously one of the things but it's not the only thing that i think about and build and stuff Owen thank you so much for your time today it's been uh, it's been humbling it's been challenging uh, it's been a huge privilege and I'm so grateful for your willingness to share your experience to to not just get punched but to teach other people how to box better um, and, to, <laughs> and the vision that you're running with of the reconciled church um, yeah. I just I think it's beautiful and it's it's what we've got saved into it's what makes the gospel so glorious so thank you for championing that and running with that and uh, I look forward to seeing what happens next Oh, well, well, I hope you enjoyed that. Enjoyed that, if that's the right word. I hope you appreciated that and benefited from that. I'm really grateful for Owen's friendship and also his wisdom gift. It's an important subject and certainly something that I've become so much more aware of my need to listen to other people and to learn from their experience in order that we can build churches that reflect the Godhead and reflect the gospel. 
Well, next time I'll bring you a conversation around a very different theme as I bring you a conversation with Paula Hall, who is the founder of the Laurel Trust and an addiction therapy specialist who works specifically in the area of sex addiction and pornography. It's a fascinating conversation. Here's a clip from that conversation. The other thing we know is that what happens when somebody is flooding their brain with um, dopamine, it begins to damage the, um, the kind of common sense part of your brain, the kind of gray matter in the frontal cortex. So it makes it harder to actually rationalize, to actually think about what the consequences might be. So, you know, when people say, oh, I don't understand addicts, you know, don't they think, don't they think about what could happen, the consequences? Well, no, is, is the short answer to that. Often they don't because that part of the brain begins to close down the more you pump dopamine. It's a fascinating conversation that I hope you'll join me for next time. That episode will be out in a couple of weeks' time. Don't forget you can get in contact with me about anything simply by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. Until next time, keep pursuing intimacy with Jesus and faithfully serving the purposes of God in our generation. God bless. See you soon.